Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. I get a lot of questions from listeners about world building and adventure and campaign design. There's also been quite a bit of interest in my new Star Wars campaign. Today, I set off again on the Obsidian Monolith to continue my discussion of my Edge of the Empire campaign. I talk about the characters the players created and what I came up with for the first adventure. So join me on the journey. Together, we can become game masters truly worthy of the title. Hello, listener. Greetings, fellow GM and or player. Welcome to episode 59 of Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. I'm your host, Lex Starwalker, and I'm transmitting to you today from the Obsidian Monolith somewhere outside time and space. So today I'm going to continue my series of episodes about my new Edge of the Empire campaign. And uh, if you're new to the show or you're skipping around or whatever and you didn't hear the first episode in this series, it's episode 58, which you can find at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey slash 58. Isn't it amazing how that works? So last episode may have seemed a little lacking <laughs> or uh, like a lot of prelude with no you know main story kind of thing so today is the the continuation of what I was discussing in the last episode the last episode I kind of gave you some of the background of my inspirations for the campaign and kind of what I was wanting to accomplish in the campaign and basically what I had in my mind going into session zero and I shared some basic things with the players and then we got together in session zero we made characters and we started discussing specifics about the campaign and and what everybody wanted from the campaign so today I'm continuing that discussion and I'm going to introduce you to the characters that the players made and start talking a bit about what was covered in session zero and also what I decided to do with the first adventure. So I had my my beginning ideas and then I got the player characters made and got some feedback from the players as far as things that they wanted to see in the campaign. And then I took all that and came up with my first adventure. Now, there's going to be a few things missing from this discussion in regards to Session Zero and things that we came up with, mainly because, I mean, I'm running this for my players, some of whom at least listen to this show, and I, you know, I want them to be able to listen to this, and I don't want them to have to worry about skipping these episodes, and I also don't want to spoil the game and the story for them. So I did discuss some of those things and and recorded it, but I've cut it out and I will release that at a later date once we're far enough in our game that it's not going to ruin or spoil anything for the players revealing that on the podcast. But I do talk quite a bit about the first adventure and kind of what I came up with for it and why I did what I did. So for those of you that have been asking me about designing adventures and campaigns, and for those of you that have been asking about my Star Wars campaign specifically, I hope that this is what you're asking for, and I hope that this is helpful to newer GMs or maybe GMs that just always run published stuff and and haven't tried coming up with their own stuff before. I hope that this is helpful to you as an example of at least how one GM does it, right? Which is not to say that my way is definitely not the only way, probably not the best way, but it's the way that works for me. And ultimately you are gonna find the way that works for you, which probably won't be exactly the way I do it, right? We're all different and that's awesome. And one other part of this discussion that that I think might be useful to you is not only do I talk about designing the first adventure, but I also talk a bit about how things panned out when we actually played the first adventure. 
and how there were some definite curveballs thrown my way, not really by the players for once. <laughs> Usually it's the players throwing the GM curveballs, but actually by the system itself. Um, the dice in this game are very swingy. And for me, the jury is still out as to whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, or somewhere in between. Um, but they're, they're very swingy. Uh, so just because you're really good at something doesn't mean you're going to do well. Just because you're not very good at something doesn't mean that you won't do well. And sometimes the completely unexpected or improbable happens. In this one game session, I had two instances where things went a very different direction than I anticipated just because of how the dice came up. So I talk a little bit about that and kind of how I coped with that and adjusted and course corrected for that on the fly while running my adventure. And I get a lot of questions from people about, you know, how to run a game. So hopefully that will be illuminating to you. So this one's pretty long, and so I'm going to just get through this preamble and get right into talking about my Star Wars campaign. So we got together for session zero, and people made characters. So I thought at this point, I will share the characters with you and tell you uh, who we've got as far as characters of our story. And I very much uh, tried to take the advice that Scott told me on our interview on the show when he was talking about how, I believe it was Dungeon World says, for session zero, to prepare nothing. And that's basically what I did. I mean, obviously, I've, I've done some thinking about kind of very general, broad things about the campaign so I can share with the players kind of what I'm wanting to do. But as far as specifics, I didn't really have much. I, I told them, you know, I have this idea of you working for a hut. So if one or more of you could have some kind of obligation to a hut for some reason, that would be awesome. And uh, that was kind of it. I, I think I told them that, you know, I'm open to maybe you guys getting involved with the Black Sun and or the Rebellion in the future. But that's really up to you. So let's see uh, what they came up with. And obviously, I'm not going to like share all the nitty-gritty details of the characters with you. I'm just going to give you enough to, to kind of know what I've got to go on as far as planning this campaign. All right, so the first character is named Anne. I'm not going to try to say the last part of her name. Z Zivari? <laughs> I don't know. Um, she is a Twi'lek or Twi'lek, I guess. That's how they say it on Rebels. So I'm assuming that's how I'm supposed to say it. I, I always said Twi'lek. I'll try to say Twi'lek. Uh, she is a Twi'lek colonist. Her specialization is performer. And her obligations, she has a family obligation. And actually, two of the characters are very closely tied together. Anne and her sister, I, I think is how I say it. I'm not sure. Um, they're twin sisters. I, I believe they're twins. They're both Twi'leks, obviously. They're sisters. And they were formerly slaves, as a lot of Twi'leks are, unfortunately. And part of kind of the connective tissue that the players came up with is these two characters were slaves, and the captain character very recently won ownership of them in a high-stakes Sabacc game. Okay? So kind of Keep that in the back of your head. And so both of these characters, Anne and I, who are the, the Twi'lek twins, have an obligation of 10 of family, which is because they have a large extended family that is enslaved. So they've managed to get free because the captain, once he won them in the game, the first thing he did is free them because he is very anti-slavery. So they're free, but the rest of their family is still enslaved. So they each have a 10-point obligation towards their family that, you know, they want to try to get the rest of their family out of slavery. And the way I'm doing their obligation on the obligation table when I roll for obligation is I actually combine that into one 20-point obligation. Since they're sharing it, it makes it more likely that it comes up. And then if it does come up, it influences both of them, not just one of them. And that's not really by the book, but that's just the way I decided to do it for kind of story and thematic reasons. 
that's just the way I decided to do it. We'll see how it works. Maybe that was a huge mistake. I don't know. We'll see. So, so yeah, that's Anne. And her job on the, the ship is she's one of the gunners. So then we have her sister, I, and she is also a Twi'lek colonist performer. And this is going to be really interesting because you notice we have two characters, same species, same career, same specialization starting out. Um, they did diverge as far as, you know, what they spent their skill points on or their XP, what skills they have, things like that. But those are very similar, like exact same species, career and specialization. So it will be really interesting to see how they diverge. And, you know, once we're, I don't know, 150 XP in, how similar and different are these two characters? And I think it will be a great illustration of how good or maybe not good the system is at allowing you to customize a character. Because we've got two people starting with almost identical characters as far as those basic choices at the beginning. And I predict they're not going to be very similar at all once we get 150 XP in because they each have kind of a different direction they want to go from that same starting point. So Anne is also a gunner on the ship. Again, they both have this family obligation. Oh, I forgot uh, Anne's other obligation. I'm, Yeah, so Anne's other obligation, she's got two five-point obligations. She's got a favor. She owes a favor to the hut. Um, so she's got the obligation to the hut that I asked for. And uh, she also has an addiction obligation. She's addicted to sex, and she tries to use it to solve problems, uh, which, of course, sometimes brings complications into her life. Now, her sister, I, uh, again, has the family obligation that they share and also has two five-point obligations. She's got a five-point obsession. What is she obsessed with? Oh, I remember. She is obsessed with finding the person who originally kidnapped her and her sister and sold them into slavery. And she also has an addiction, and she is addicted to... Why can't I remember this? Let me look at my notes here. See, this is why you take notes. Copious notes as a GM. Let's see. Oh, gambling, of course. <laughs> uh, kind of fitting. She, she, her freedom was won uh, in a Sabat game. Not played by her, played by someone else. And she herself is addicted to gambling. All right, so those are our two Twi'leks. Both gunners on the ship. And as far as on the ground, they are both uh, very charismatic entertainers. So they're going to be good with people. And I think it's always good to have more than one person in your party that's good with people, right? Uh, next is our captain. His name is Leto. He is a human smuggler with the scoundrel specialization. And as far as his obligations, he has a 10-point obligation, uh, a bounty from the Black Sun. So he was actually, in part of his backstory, he was involved with the Black Sun. He was a member of a cell. Kind of had a falling out with them when he was caught sleeping with the sister of the cell leader. So he took off, and now they they have a bounty for him because you know he knows about the cell, although he doesn't really know anything beyond that. But he does know about the cell, and so they have a bounty out on him. He also has a 10-point debt to the hut, the same hut that we're all trying to tie to. Uh, he owes this hut money for the ship. So at this point, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the ship and how this comes in. So you remember that there was this high-stakes Sabat game, and Leto, our captain, won uh, Anne and I, the two Twi'lek slave girls, in this game, and then freed them, like, immediately afterwards. So their their characters are free now. And just in, in case you don't know, in this time period in Star Wars, uh, slavery is actually illegal in the Empire, which is kind of surprising. As evil as the Empire is, they don't allow slavery. However, slavery is still a thing in hut space, and the Empire kind of doesn't shove their weight around too much in hut space. So within hut space, there are still slaves. So we have this high-stakes Sabat game, and one idea that the players came up with during session zero was that the hut that we're kind of trying to involve in the story, who one of the players, I think it was the player of Leto, the captain, came up with the hut's name, which is Sluga. Or maybe I came up, one of us came up with it. I can't remember. But I love the name Sluga. So Sluga the hut is this hut that we're talking about. And the players came up with this idea 
that Sluga actually rigged the game for some unknown reason, rigged the game so that Leto would win. And so that's something to keep in mind because that's something I'm going to be pulling into the story and I'll talk about here in a few minutes. So we talked about, you know, how Leto came in possession of this ship. And I didn't want to give them just a stock YT-1300. I wanted to give them something a little different. And I wanted to uh, make the ship as much a character as any of the characters. And, and I, I, I've told the players once or twice that the ship is basically my character <laughs> in the story. So I have a lot of uh, interesting ideas and things about the ship. And, and I thought about the ship's history before the PCs come in, in the possession of it and who some of the previous owners were. And I'm planning to have some of this stuff come up as we go through the story that they're going to run into uh, some, some of the ship's history and it's going to have effects on, on them now. So we came up with that Leto bought the ship from Sluga and Sluga gave him a really good price for the ship. He didn't gouge him for it, uh, but Leto couldn't afford to buy it. So he borrowed the money from Sluga. So he owes Sluga quite a bit of money for this ship. So he's got a, a 10 point obligation there. And, you know, at this point, when the PCs get the ship, all that they really know is that the ship was in basically a hut impound lot for a while. Um, it hasn't been flown for a while. And yeah, for some reason, Sluga gave it to or sold it to Lido at, at a kind of a discount. They don't know why. And yeah, so that's a mystery. And I have to decide when to share that with you um, because the more of that I share, the longer I have to wait to release that <laughs> because it's stuff the players don't know about yet. All right, uh, but maybe we'll talk more about the ship later. So we've got our Twi'lek uh, twins. We've got our captain. And uh, the captain, I, I should mention, his job on the ship is actually, he's basically like the co-pilot. He's got some piloting ability, but he's not the main pilot. So he, he helps with assisting things. Uh, he's also got um, leadership. So sometimes he, he uses his leadership to help out. So he's kind of that that fifth person that kind of goes where he's needed. Next, speaking of pilots, we have Tabin, who is the pilot of the ship. He is a Chiss, and he is a smuggler, and his specialization is pilot. So we have two smugglers, which is awesome because this is a smuggler campaign. So Tabin is a Chiss pilot. As far as his obligations, if I can find them, he's got a different character sheet here. Ah, oh, he's got a 10-point obligation in notoriety. So he is very well known for flying for Sluga the Hut. So we've got both of the twins kind of owe their freedom to Sluga, although I don't think they know that. I don't actually I'm not sure if the players characters know that the Sabak game was rigged. I don't think they do. I think that's going to be a reveal. The players know cuz they came up with the idea, but I don't think the characters know that the game was rigged. So so both of the the twins kind of owe Sluga for that. And she actually has a favor obligation to Sluga. Our captain owes Sluga money, has, has a debt obligation to Sluga. And now our pilot has notoriety and is known for, for flying for Sluga. And, you know, his face is very well known in this sector, uh, which when you're, you know, a smuggler is, is not a good thing. And then our final character is T09D, who obviously is a droid, and he is a technician with the specialization mechanic. So guess what he does on the ship? You got it. He's the mechanic. Uh, he is also pretty good uh, with computers, so he can do slicing as well. His obligations are he's got a 10-point bounty and a 10-point favor. And T0 has a very interesting history. During the Clone Wars, he was a medical droid for the Empire. He was a surgical droid. And when Order 66 happened and what became the Empire assassinated all the Jedi, T-Zero had, uh, call it a glitch, call it a moment of sentience, whatever. But he had this moment where he came to see what the Empire was doing or what would soon become the Empire was doing as evil and wrong. And so 
he proceeded to begin allowing the clone troopers to die on his table in various ways. So he'd have troopers come in for surgery and they would not survive the surgery because he saw them as evil. Well, of course, the people supervising him realize eventually that that something's not right with this droid. And so they send him to have his memory wiped. So the person that's going to wipe his memory actually takes pity on him and helps him to escape. So for the last 20 some years, T-Zero has been on the run in the outer rim uh, from the Empire. And he has since uh, gotten some forged manumission papers. So he's a free droid. And the 10-point bounty obligation is the the Empire, the 20-year-old bounty that they have on his head uh, for defecting, basically. And the 10-point favor obligation is to the person that, that helped him escape. And he is all about droid rights. So you see already um, a theme emerging, right, that I did not plan for. I, I did not anticipate this. I did not plan for this. I did not ask for this. This just happened organically during session zero with the characters, we've got two characters who were very recently slaves who were freed by another character, the captain who feels very strongly that slavery is wrong and and should be eradicated. And their family is still enslaved. And, you know, their big goal as characters is to free their family. And then we have a droid who escaped the slavery of being a droid and being, you know, the empire's property and is wanting all droids to have rights and all these things. So we, so we have this theme here of slavery and quote unquote human rights. I mean, I guess we can't call it human rights. I don't know what we call it. (laughs) Sentient rights in the game. And so I have four of the five characters are very, closely and deeply tied into this theme of slavery and rights. So as a GM, I would be crazy not to use that, right? So I'm going to use it and I'll talk about that. So there's our characters. I'm I'm still trying to decide how much to tell you about the ship because I have some really cool ideas about the ship and I don't know. Well, you know what? I'll just go ahead and tell you because I feel like this will be incomplete if I don't. And then I'll just have to decide when I can safely release this. So the ship I gave them is a YT-2400, which just out of the factory is uh, quite a bit better than the YT-1300. Instead of just asteroid plinking laser cannons, it's got twin laser cannons. So it does the same damage, has the same range, but it has the linked one property, which uh, can be pretty awesome. Actually, I okay, that's what the stock one has. Their, Their ship isn't stock. Their ship actually has quad laser cannons, which uh, I I might regret (laughs) giving them quad laser cannons. Uh, The first session um, was pretty crazy. There were a couple really good shots with the quad laser cannons uh, resulting in the complete destruction of a Lambda shuttle, which I did not see coming. Um, So I wonder if maybe I overdid it giving them quad laser cannons. My thinking was the, the quad laser cannons have linked three which, uh, you know, when you get a lot of advantages can, can lead to just ridiculous amounts of damage. And it also has accurate one, which gives you a single boost die when you rolled a hit with them. And the reason I did that is because I was thinking, and I might've been naive or wrong about this, but I was thinking, well, the linked three isn't really that powerful starting out because you need, you know, all these advantages to activate that. But it's something that as the gunners get more more good at gunnery, wow, that's terrible English. But as they get better at gunnery, um, they you know that will mean more and more. And and in a way, I think that the weapons will kind of scale with their ability as far as the damage they put out because of that linked property. I could be wrong about that. We'll see. And the other thing is, I was thinking that the accurate would be nice because I told the players that I was like, you know, if doing things on the ship isn't really your thing, I would recommend being a gunner because you only need one skill gunnery and that's all you need to be a gunner where a lot of the other roles on the ship, you know, ideally you have at least two or three different skills, right? So I thought, well, if I have one or more PCs that are gunners because they're not really interested in the ship thing, 
you know, having that boost die will help if they're not going to put a lot of points into their gunnery skill, right? So that's kind of what I was thinking. And also, I didn't want, you know, the ship to be stuck because, I mean, if you think about it from a story perspective, no party's beginning ship would be a stock ship. Like all these people flying YT-1300s, not one of them would be a stock YT-1300. I mean, the only way you'd have a stock YT-1300 if it just came off the factory floor, right? Because the first thing anybody does when they get a YT-1300 is they start making their own modifications, right? That's what the ship is good for. That's what it's built for. So from a story perspective, it doesn't make any sense at all to give new PCs a stock ship. But I think from a game design perspective, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Because A, you know, it's open to them how they want to upgrade and customize that ship. And B, every upgrade they do is a money sink. So why would you want to take away money sinks? But I decided, at least for this campaign, to go with what made more sense story-wise. And because I wanted the ship to be a character, I wanted the ship to have a very colorful history that the PCs will slowly learn about over time. And for that, it wouldn't make sense for the ship to be stock, right? So one of the modifications that I gave the ship, of course, I had to give it smuggling compartments. And the idea here was, these are just plot hooks for me. So here's the idea that that I had in the very beginning, is the PCs get the ship, and in the first or second session, they discover a smuggling compartment, a hidden compartment for smuggling illegal goods, like Han Solo had in the Millennium Falcon. We saw it in episode four. Everybody hid inside the smuggling compartments when the Millennium Falcon was pulled into the Death Star. You all remember that scene? I built these things for smuggling. I never thought I'd be smuggling myself in them. <laughs> anyway, so... So I had this idea. I'm like, well, anybody who's a smuggler, the first thing they're going to do with their ship is put in smuggling compartments, right? Like you kind of have to have them if you're going to smuggle or at least be very successful at it. And so I thought, well, how fun would it be if the ship has them? And, you know, I'll let them know fairly early on that they're there by having them find one. And uh, it tied into the first adventure because they needed to smuggle something and it was convenient. that Oh, hey, here's some place we can hide this stuff that's illegal. But... What I really liked about the idea is that I can have the characters discover these through time, right? And I can have the smuggling compartments have cool, interesting things inside of them that will lead to adventures. And I don't have to come up with these all right now. I have some ideas, but I don't have to come up with them. I only, you know, when, when I need something for an adventure idea or whatever, I can have the players discover a new secret compartment with some crazy thing in it that's going to springboard this new adventure, right? So so that was the idea I had, and uh, I ran with it. Then I got the Fly Casual Smuggler book and found in there you can get cloaked smuggling compartments that are even harder to find than regular smuggling compartments, And so that's what I did because I'm like, well, if they're cloaked, it makes a lot more sense that the PCs wouldn't be able to find them all right away. Right. And and so I came up with a system where basically, you know, they find the easy to find ones first. Right. So if the PCs want to go around rolling perception, like each subsequent compartment is harder to find. And that's a way kind of mechanically to ensure that they don't just find them all at once. You know, and they kind of find them as they progress. But that's only if they like make a big deal of going and searching for them. You know, the plan is really I'm just going to reveal them as a story thing when when I need them to have something for for a story reason. Uh, it can be in a, a smuggling compartment. And, you know, depending on the situation, I could just do that and just say, hey, you find a smuggling compartment or I could ask a PC to flip a a destiny point and say, hey, if you want to flip a destiny point, I got something for you that's going to help you out kind of thing. Or depending what's in there, I could do it by flipping a dark side point if it's something that's going to lead to problems, right? So that's the idea. You know, there are the smuggling compartments with who knows what in them that over time through the course of the campaign, the PCs will discover and will present new mysteries and new problems to solve and springboard into new stories and stuff like that. And so that's the one modification. The other modification is the quad guns. Some of the history I came up with the ship 
was uh, one of the owners uh, was a smuggler who was very successful and made a lot of money. And he's the one that, that installed the cloaked smuggling compartments. And one of the owners was a pirate and he's the one that installed the quad guns. And yeah, I, I guess that's enough for now. I have more. I'd have to dig out my notes. But, you know, the nice thing about a lot of this stuff, it's, it's kind of, it can kind of be up in the air, right? And that's kind of one of the secrets or tricks to GMing is, you know, don't really nail stuff down until you have to, right? Until you tell the player something, it can be in flux and it can change if you need it to because they don't even know about it and they're never going to know that you change something from one thing to another so that it better fit the story that was evolving or it better fit someone's character or background or, or whatever. All right. So for the first adventure, I have a few players in the group who have never played this game before. So I wanted to, and you know, I haven't run it a lot at this point. So I wanted the first adventure to be a good like entry into the system. And I wanted to take inspiration from the beginner games for Edge of the Empire and Force of Destiny, both of which I've run. And, you know, just as an aside, I think the beginner games do a great job of teaching you the system, but I don't think either of the adventures are that great and they're extremely railroady. So, you know, I didn't want to use one of those for those reasons, but I thought, you know, I want to take this idea of kind of teaching you the system as we go and designing an adventure that does that. So what I came up with is the first adventure is going to be mainly about getting to know the ship and for the PCs getting to know each other. So I decided that this Sabat game in which, you know, Leto won the twins and him getting the ship from Sluga all happened at pretty much the same time. I decided to start everybody out on Kessel. So everyone's on Kessel at the beginning of the campaign. That's where the Sabat game happened. And Kessel is very close to Hut space. That is just a cool place that everybody who's at all into Star Wars at least knows the name of, right? Because of the Kessel run. The campaign starts, they're on Kessel. The card game just happened. Leto just won the Twins. The ship has just been landed at Kessel. Someone working for Sluga has brought the ship there. And our session begins with Leto taking possession of the ship. So he, you know, the ship's just been delivered, signed over to him. He takes possession. He's now the owner of it. Never been on board, right? Don't know anything about this ship other than the factory specs, which are in some cases wrong. For instance, they don't mention quad laser cannons. And he's got uh, his crew assembled at this point. Now, we rolled for obligation for the first session. And if you were paying attention, the group obligation is 90. 9-0. The only reason it isn't 100 is because one of the players took one for the team and didn't take extra obligation during character creation. So 90 obligation. The obligation of the pilot Tabin's notoriety came up. So I decided what had happened was, you know, they were on Kessel and an info chant saw Tabin, recognized him, knew that he was shipping with these other people, kind of saw them together, basically, recognized Tabin, but then started, you know, digging into these people with him to see where they are and realized that uh, some of them had bounties on their head and so called some bounty hunter friends of his. And so the session begins with Tabin finding out that he's been spotted and, you know, Leto hears there's a bounty hunter on Kessel looking for him. And so the idea is, is I want to get these guys on the ship and off the planet ASAP because my whole adventure plan happens on the ship. And, and I don't want to have a bunch of downtime where they're on the planet doing this and that because I want to, you know, get them into some action pretty quickly. So that's how it starts out. Uh, the players play along. You know, they don't want to deal with all these bounty hunters. And I, I told them, I said, you know, the standard procedure for a bounty hunter in this kind of situation is to go to the port authority and have them lock your ship down. And they can physically lock your ship down and keep you from leaving. 
So they're like, hey, guys, we got to get the fuck out of here before they lock us down and we can't leave, right? So even though they haven't inspected the ship or taken an inventory of what's on board, they jump on the ship and take off. Now, something that Leto got when he got possession of the ship was he also got a message from Sluga who told him that there's already some cargo on the ship that he wants delivered to him at Toydaria, which is the Toydarian homeworld. Imagine that. Uh, the flying blue guys from episode one, the Star Wars we all try to forget, uh, except for Qui-Gon and Darth Maul, who were awesome. Anyway, oh, and the Naboo starship, which was awesome. And the droids on the Naboo starship, which was awesome. Other than that, terrible movie. <laughs> anyway, uh, where was I? So yeah, there's this cargo. He tells them a couple of the containers have uh, sensitive cargo that he might want to put someplace inconspicuous. Hint, hint, they're illegal. So they, they, you know, they need to get off Kessel. They have somewhere to go. They've got this cargo to take to Tordaria. They're going to get paid to do so. Pretty good money. So they take off. They blast off into space, right? So the uh, fun starts when they realize that, you know, this ship hasn't been used for a while and not everything is ship shape on the ship. And let me get my notes from session one and I can talk about that. Session one, maiden voyage. Oh, here's the, the opening crawl. I'll, I'll read this for you. So, you know, the, the folks at Fantasy Flight Games encourage us as GMs to use opening crawls in our adventures, which is, you know, at the beginning of the Star Wars movie, like the thing you have to read. So this is mine. I made an attempt. It's, I don't think it's succinct enough, but I tried. It is a time of galactic civil war. The Alliance to Restore the Republic has recently won an important victory with the destruction of the Death Star. In response, the Empire is sparing no cost in its search for the Alliance fleet. Meanwhile, in the Outer Rim, on an oblong planetoid near hut space called Kessel, a would-be light freighter captain named Lido Taka has just had the windfall of a lifetime. A series of fortuitous events, including a high-stakes Sabat game, has resulted in Lido acquiring a ship and crew to begin his business venture. Unfortunately for Lido and his new associates, his pilot, a Chiss named Tabin, has earned a large degree of infamy in the sector as an employee of Sluga the Hut. A well-known face is seldom an asset in the Outer Rim, and because of Tabin, Lido and his crew have come to the attention of all the wrong people including a couple of bounty hunters looking for Leto and his engineer, an AWOL Imperial medical droid named T-09D. Leto's newly acquired ship, a CEC-YT-2400 called Hut's Virtue, has just arrived on Kessel. In its hold is cargo that the crew must deliver to Sluga on Toydaria. The bounty hunters are closing in and there's no time for an inventory or systems check. They must get off the planet before the bounty hunters have the Kessel Port Authority lock their ship down. So that's the opening crawl. They take off. And, uh, you know, I determined, you know, I told them kind of, you know, because Captain Leto was all about, like, checking the ship out. He didn't want to, like, go into hyperspace without knowing <laughs> that everything was kosher, which, which was smart of him, right? Um, so I told them, I was like, well, basically, I said... You think kind of what you need to do to be safe here is you just need to get out of sensor range of the planet. Presumably, the bounty hunters are going to realize you leave and they're going to come after you. As long as you're out of range of the planet, out of sensor range, I mean, they can't really find you, right? So uh figured out from, you know, the rules that it would take them two starship maneuvers to get from close to medium range at their speed of three. And then it would take two more to get from medium to long and then two more from long to extreme, which, you know, if they wanted to strain, strain the ship, they could do that in like three turns. So basically, as long as they like did that, <laughs> as long as they were like, OK, we're going to fly out of sensor range like they were fine. You know, it's like it's going to take way more than three or even six turns for the bounty hunters to figure out what's going on and take off after them. So that's what they do. They fly out of sensor range of the planet and then they start exploring the ship and, and checking things out. So what I decided to do with this first part of the adventure is I wanted to have a scene where they can just kind of get to know each other and get to know the ship, their home base, right? So I decided a great way to do that is to have some malfunctions. And I got some ideas for this actually from the beginner game for Edge of the Empire. 
And um, one thing, or actually it's not the beginner game, it's the sequel to that adventure. Um, I think it's called The Long Arm of the Hut, which you can actually download for free from Fantasy Flight Games' website. It continues the adventure in the beginner game. And one thing that I liked about that adventure was at the very beginning, you know, they just stole the ship and there's all these problems with it that they have to deal with. And they also find all these weird things on the ship. So I took some ideas directly from that and just transplanted them over, which you should definitely do as a GM, um, as far as like some of the odds and ends that they find on board. And then I added some things myself. And uh, yeah, so this is kind of what I came up with. So the navigational systems on the ship, uh, namely the navigational computer, its software is corrupted. So the software needs to be wiped and reinstalled. This will take an average computer's check and will take one hour. Each advantage on the check reduces the time it will take by 10 minutes. Another issue on the ship is the hyperdrive needs a tune-up. So until this is repaired, the players will have to add one setback die to all astrogation rolls until it's fixed. That will take an average mechanics check and will take eight hours to do the tune-up. Each advantage achieved on the roll will reduce that time by one hour. The shields are offline. All that will take is an average mechanics roll to repair. Uh, Fuel, the consumables are at 50%, which is 30 days. And then there are the cloaked smuggling compartments, which I mentioned already. Now, the first one is fairly easy for the PCs to find because the latching mechanism is broken. It only takes a hard perception roll to find, and the latching mechanism can be repaired with an average mechanics roll. So they have these difficulties to deal with, and I figured out that if they try to astrogate to Toydaria without first tuning up the hyperdrive, again, that adds a setback die to the roll. And then if they try it um, without reinstalling the Navic computer software, the difficulty is going to be four on the astrogation roll. If they fix the Navic computer software, but they don't fix all the other systems on the ship, then the difficulty is going to be two. And if the ship is fully repaired, the difficulty will be one. And then uh, I found a nice floor plan for the YT-2400. And I went through all of the different areas of the ship and I just left things there for the PCs. And this, again, was an idea I I stole from the long arm of the hut and and some of the actual equipment and stuff I stole from there. So let's see. Um, I I won't share all of these, but some of the more interesting ones. uh, The cockpit has a secret compartment with a holdout blaster inside. The escape pods have crash survival kits. The captain's quarters, there's a secret compartment with a thousand credits. Difficulty three to find. Galley has some ration packs. Also has an excellent calf machine, although the calf itself is old and stale. And uh, that that was inspiration from The Expanse. I I realized after reading The Expanse that every spaceship needs a really good coffee machine. That's almost as important as as the main drive, right? The main hold has two vacuum suits, two respirators, uh, and then there's the cargo that they have to transport. And the illegal cargo, they have a case of glitter stim, and they have a case of disruptor pistols. So those are the illegal items that they're transporting. And uh, I made sure that the one cloaked compartment that they were likely to find was big enough to hold those two things. Uh, Some of the quarters had things like data pads and stim packs in them, blaster pistol power packs, stuff like that. Uh, Main engineering, they they had a mechanics hand scanner in there. Storage room had a general purpose scanner and some glow rods. Another storage room had some binders and emergency med pack. Uh, One of the holds had some droid droid parts that they can use to build their own uh, astromech droid. Um, that would take difficulty three mechanics in a week of work, or they could sell the parts for 2,000 credits. So yeah, stuff like that. So almost every room on the ship had something in it. Um, and the idea was that, you know, a ship, unless you buy a ship brand new, it's not going to be probably empty, right? And the ship had been searched by Sluga's cronies for anything, you know, worth a significant amount of money. Um, but they were in a hurry. So, you know, they overlooked a lot of mundane stuff. 
so kind of the first encounter of the first adventure is just dealing with these repairs, which they did, and kind of exploring the ship and seeing what's all on there and dealing with stowing the illegal goods. And then they, they begin their journey. And I determined that the actual trip has four legs because uh, if you look at the hut sector map in Lords of Hutta, um, going from Kessel to Toidaria, there's a pretty direct path you can take, but it goes through the uh, Butana Hutta region, which non-huts are not allowed to go there. So instead, they have to take kind of four jumps to get where they need to go. Uh, they go from Kessel to Narkrita, Narkrita to the Utmian Pabble, the Utmian Pabble to now Hutta, and then now Hutta to Toidaria. So they come out of hyperspace for the, the first leg of their journey in the Narkrita system. This is also the Captain Leto's home system. So I thought it would be fun to have something happen here. And here they are attacked by a group of pilots manning a stolen Lambda shuttle. And the idea here is these guys are actually working for Sluga. Um, they know <laughs> about this, this trip that the PCs are taking and they're waiting in ambush. They've been hired by Sluga to rough the PCs up a bit. And, and Sluga's basically using this as a way to test the PCs and see if they can actually function as a crew and, and handle themselves in a combat situation before he entrusts them with more important missions in the future. So they drop out of hyperspace. Lambda shuttles very suspiciously is waiting there for them. They proceed to have a little bit of dialogue. The uh, captain tries some smooth talking, which the, the pirates aren't having, and then shots start firing. The two Twi'leks jump onto the quad cannons while the pilot's taking evasive maneuvers and the mechanic's angling deflector shields and the captain's trying to smooth everything over with the pirate commander over the comms. And the Twi'leks, who at this point, no one really knows why they're on the ship other than, you know, the captain was just like, well, you guys can stay here until you figure something out. But everybody's kind of like, well, they don't really have a purpose here. Um, they more than prove themselves once they get on those guns and they blow that Lambda shuttle to smithereens, which is the point where I start wondering if maybe giving them quad laser cannons wasn't such a great idea. But now I can just throw more epic things at them, right? It'll be fun. So they manage that uh, without really taking any, any real damage, just some, some system strain, which is easily dealt with, and they continue their journey. So the next encounter happens when they arrive in the Todaria system. Oh, and I, I should mention that they're kind of on to that this was a setup because uh, the captain made a really good role. And so I let him know that he recognized the voice of the pirate captain as uh, someone that he knows has worked for Sluga in the past. So they're already suspecting that Sluga might be behind this and also they were suspicious just because it's like how would they know that we were here you know how would they know that we would be coming out of hyperspace in this area at this time right so they arrive in the Todaria system the third encounter of the adventure is uh, an inspection so they're approached by two imperial customs frigates and, and this was something that I changed ad hoc as we were running the game, after seeing how they so casually handled the Lambda shuttle, I was originally just going to have one Imperial Customs frigate, but I did not want them to fight the Empire at this point. You know, I wanted to present this as you're not going to win this fight. You just have to comply. Right. So I was like, OK, I'm going to have two frigates because if I have one, I'm afraid after blowing the Lambda shuttle to smithereens, they're going to be cocky and they're going to think, oh, we can take one Imperial frigate. So I had two <laughs> just to be safe. So the, you know, one of the frigates contacts them, tells them to power down their engines and their weapons and shields and prepare to be boarded. Uh, they're boarded by Inspector Grant of the Imperial Customs. And he is accompanied by an aide, Agent Perkins, and four stormtroopers. So he decides to search the ship. Now, there's a couple things that happened in this adventure that really kind of threw things for a loop and really kind of illustrate how you never know what's going to happen in this game with the way the dice work. The first one was the destruction of the Lambda shuttle. Both of the characters playing the Twi'leks 
had really good roles in one turn and between the two of them they just obliterated it one one of the characters was able to activate the linked property of the quad cannon like two or three times i mean it was insane so that was an eye-opener um that you never know what's going to happen so that so that encounter i expected uh that they would have to run away I, I didn't expect them. I, I figured either they, they'll they'll get away, or the pirates will quote unquote win and will board them and steal their cargo. Right? They're not going to blow them up, but they, they'll get them to submit, board them, and steal their cargo. I did not anticipate that they would blow the Lambda sh- shuttle up, but that's what happened. So then, the certain inspection encounter, I really anticipated with the cloaked compartments that the inspector wouldn't actually find anything. But it was just kind of a way to remind the PCs of, hey, you know, this is dangerous business. And, you know, if you don't have things hidden well and everything, you could be in big trouble. And uh, also kind of was there in case the PCs didn't take the time to fix the smuggling compartment and stow the illegal goods in there as kind of like, oh, well, I guess you should have done that because now you guys are going to jail or whatever would have happened. Well, what instead what happened is I'm rolling... <laughs> for the inspector who's searching the ship just to build tension. I don't expect him to succeed because it's a really hard roll. I rolled phenomenally. I don't remember what I rolled, but it was like multiple successes, multiple advantages. The the PCs are pulling out the stuff. I'm letting them do things after the roll because this is like really bad, right? So I'm letting them come up with things after the roll to, to maybe add some setback dice or whatever, but it's just not happening. They, they got rid of some of the successes and advantages, but they couldn't get rid of them all. So um, the way I ended up explaining how this guy finds this cloak compartment is that he was actually familiar, very familiar with the exact make and model of smoke com- of uh, cloaked compartments that they had. So if they would have happened to use some other manufacturers, you know, cloaked compartments, he might not have found them. But because they used the one that he's very familiar with, he found it. So this was a, a very oh shit moment, not only for the players, but for me. Because I'm like, I don't want them to like go to jail or, you know, that's not a very good story. So one of the players, I believe, it's been a few weeks since, since we ran this, but I believe the way this went down is one of the players asked to make a role to uh, bribe him. So on the fly, I decided, you know, because that, as a GM, you have to decide, can this NPC be bought, right? If the NPC can't be bought, then it doesn't matter really what you roll because he can't be bought, right? If the NPC can be bought, then it matters. And normally, an, an, a, a customs inspector of the Empire, I would say he can't be bought, or at least he can't be bought by anything you could afford, Right. But, you know, things were going south with this encounter. And, you know, my purpose with this encounter was just to kind of up the pupker factor and remind the PCs that, you know, this is serious, dangerous business. And if you're going to smuggle, you want to be careful. It wasn't my goal to, like, put them in jail and deal with that. So I decided on the fly that this guy could be bought. And specifically, he could be bought because he had a glitter stim addiction. And he finds the glitter stim that the PCs are carrying. So when the PC tries to bribe him, he basically accepts a bribe of, I think it was a few thousand credits and some of the glitter stim, which was what he really wanted, right? And I I even went so far as to decide that this guy could be a possible connection for the PCs in the future. They know of this customs inspector in the Toydaria system who, you know, can be bought with credits and glitter stim. So if they ever need uh, an inside, you know, contact in the empire, uh, he, he could be a good one. So, so I guess there's an example of how an encounter started to really go south from what I planned, but how I was able to course correct for that and end up kind of getting something good out of it, even though it was completely unexpected and unplanned for. So, you know, I end up with the PCs having a possible contact in the Empire that, that I can tap in the future if, if I need to. And I took notes on that and I wrote down the guy's name. I said he's a glitter stim addict. You know, he got some from the PCs and they bribed him successfully. And, you know, he could be a possible contact if they need it in the future. And then finally, the fourth and final scene for the first adventure was them landing at Tordaria. They meet uh, one of Sluga's henchmen a Deveronian named Diego, 
who uh, takes the cargo and pays them. And they get to make their opposed negotiation roles with Diego. And they ended up making a, a pretty good profit on that. Uh, they got there, I think, a two and a half or a day and a half early because of some really good astrogation roles. And that's another thing I really like about the Fly Casual Smuggler book is it has tables for astrogation checks and like how much more quickly you can get there with like advantages and successes and stuff, which is really cool for a smuggler campaign. So, you know, he pays them, he takes the cargo and he tells them to hang out because Sluga is going to have a job for them in the near future. The PCs also confront Diego about the fact that they were stopped by customs, which, you know, their understanding is that that normally shouldn't happen in this system and kind of trying to see if, you know, Sluga might have been behind that. They also confronted him about the pirate attack. And they were able to, you know, make some rolls and glean from him that the pirate thing did not surprise him. Like they could tell he wasn't surprised by it, but he didn't seem to know anything about Imperial customs. So at this point, the, the players are pretty sure that Sluga was behind the pirate attack. Uh, they suspect he might have been behind the customs attack. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. It's been a while since I ran this. I just remembered actually when they bribed the inspector the inspector kind of gave him a word to the wise and said, you know, I'm not at liberty to divulge details, but I will tell you that normally, you know, we don't stop ships like yours in this system. We don't do routine inspections like that. And you have an enemy or some enemies who uh, tipped us off about you. So you might want to look into that, but he, you know, wouldn't tell him who. So they suspect Sluga's behind that too, but they don't know. They have a lot of suspicions, but no no knowledge for sure. And that's how we ended the first session, which again is the only session that we've actually played so far. All right, so that is going to wrap up my discussion of my Edge of the Empire campaign for today. I am planning to do more of these in the future. So I'd love to hear from you what you think of these episodes specifically. And you can reach me by email at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. You can also find me on Google Plus, just search for Lex Starwalker. And you can follow me on Twitter at Lex Starwalker. Please visit my website at starwalkerstudios.com. There you can find the show notes for Game Master's Journey and all the episodes. And you can also find my other podcasts there. Currently, we are producing Beer Tasters, which is all about, you guessed it, beer. And we are producing Expanse, the unofficial podcast, which is a podcast all about the imminent new space opera TV series on the Sci-Fi Channel called The Expanse, which is based on the Expanse series of novels by James S.A. Corey. And that show is starting December 14th, but we're getting started early and we're doing a series of episodes right now introducing the main cast members and main characters to you. So definitely check that out. In the show notes for the Game Master's Journey episodes, you can find our Patreon and donate buttons if you would like to support the show. I really appreciate everyone who helps support the Starwalker Studios productions and keep them going. And you can also find iTunes and Stitcher buttons if you would like to subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher. At the bottom of the show notes, you can find a link to the Game Master's Journey Google Plus community, which is a great place to connect not only with myself, but with other listeners, gamers, GMs, and share your knowledge. Awesome stuff. Also, you can find links to my YouTube channel, 30-day trial of Audible Books, courtesy of Game Master's Journey, and my Amazon referral link. Also, uh, I keep forgetting to mention this, but we now have a newsletter for Starwalker Studios that you can sign up for at the bottom of the show notes of any of our shows that we're currently producing. And that is a newsletter that I will put out at most once a month, just kind of updating you what's going on with the studio, what's going on with the various shows. So yeah, maximum one email a month. So, you know, I believe me, I know how annoying it is to sign up for a newsletter on someone's site and they're just sending you crap all the time. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. One a month tops. 
But uh, that's a, another great way just to kind of keep up to date on what's going on with the show and with Starwalker Studios. I hope that you have a chance to play and or run your favorite RPG this week. I'll be back next week with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music provided by Cloudwalker, Renfield, Transboy, and Ish. Please see the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey. Thank you.